We open the Holy Scriptures to 1 Corinthians 13. Picking up once more our series through this great chapter on Christian love. We'll read the whole chapter once again together, and the text that we focus on is the last few words of verse 5. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith Hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Call your attention back to verse 5. Our text thinketh no evil. Charity, that is love, thinketh no evil. Beloved in the Lord, one of the skills that we have all had to learn, or in the case of being very young yet, we will have to learn, is the skill of good bookkeeping. Bookkeeping, that is, keeping a good and accurate record of where our money is going. Good bookkeeping, keeping a good record of our income, what we spend, so that we can budget accordingly. This is important because it's a part of being a good steward of what God places in our hands, as well as being part of ensuring that we live within our means. Some of us, perhaps we've had some training 
in bookkeeping or we work in the realm of finances and for us then this bookkeeping is something we have a knack for or we enjoy doing it. We keep meticulous records of our finances and others of us maybe a little bit less so and yet nonetheless bookkeeping is a skill that we all have to be able to do with some level of competency. That's the figure now that is the illustration used by our text to teach us about love. 1 Corinthians 13, as we know, the apostle, by inspiration of the Spirit, is painting the portrait of love. And all of these actions or attributes of love that we see in the verses before us are as facial features of true Christian love, ultimately painting the face of Jesus Christ, in whom the love of God is made manifest perfectly. Now at the end of verse 5, the text uses this figure drawn from the realm of financial bookkeeping in order to illustrate for us another aspect of love in action. Love thinketh no evil. And the idea of our text is that love is not a meticulous bookkeeper when it comes to the wrongs and the offenses done to me by my spouse, by my child, by my friend, by my brother or sister in the church, by my co-worker. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So that what is good to do in the realm of our finances, what is responsible, good stewardship, is in the realm of the spiritual, malpractice and indeed detrimental, contrary to love, damaging to our relationships and dishonoring to God. Love is not a meticulous bookkeeper of the wrongs inflicted upon it, but rather the opposite, the positive. Love is forgiving. And has a forgiving spirit towards my spouse, my child, my friend, my brother, my sister in the church, my co-worker. And that's the very, very practical truth that our text is going to instruct us in this evening. So very practical a lesson for us in our relationships And the heeding of this lesson of the scripture will bear the fruit of healthier and stronger relationships. This is how we love one another. By not keeping a record of one another's wrongs. So let's look at this next facial feature of Christian love. Our theme is love keeps no record of wrongs. First going to look at the basic meaning of the text. And then secondly, we're going to draw from that basic meaning the implied calling that comes to us. And then finally, we will look at the powerful motivation that the gospel gives us to heed the instruction of our text. Charity thinketh no evil. Love here is personified. 
as it is elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13. The idea being the Christian person, the believer, the one in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, that person in whom Christian love, which is a fruit of the Spirit, rules and prevails, that person in his or her daily life and interactions and relationships in this world, that person thinketh no evil. What does that mean? Well, at the first reading, the main point of this phrase at the end of verse 5 may not be readily apparent. The King James, its translation is correct, but it could be more precise, and it could be improved. The point of our text is not this, that love doesn't think evil thoughts, though that is true. That is a biblical teaching. You can find that elsewhere in Scripture. The main point of the text is not that love does not plot evil against the neighbor. That is likewise true. But the meaning of the text is that love does not keep a record of the wrongdoing that others around me have inflicted upon me. That's the idea. The word evil here in our text focuses not so much on evil in general that we find out there, but focuses on the specific concrete wrongdoing that I suffer in the course of my earthly life. The concrete words or actions that other people do against me that violate God's law and have caused me hurt or offense in some way. To use the wording of the Lord's prayer, the text when it speaks of evil is referring to To the debts of my debtors. Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Who are our debtors? Our debtors are those who sin against us. And the evil spoken of in this text. Are those sins of my spouse. My child. My friend. My fellow church member. Against me. Now the text instructs us. Concerning those sins. When it says. Love thinketh no evil. And now, this word thinketh is not first of all referring to our thought process. But rather, this word could better be translated reckoning, counting, calculating, imputing. Thus, the text means this, thinketh no evil. Not reckoning wrongdoing. Not counting up or tallying up the wrongs that have been done to me. Not imputing to my spouse, my child, my friend, my fellow believer, my co-worker. Not imputing to them their debts, the guilt of their sins against me. And the word thinking here in the te- or thinketh here in the text is present tense, denoting an activity that is either ongoing or repeated. Love does not keep on recording, writing down wrongs. Love does not keep on reckoning the sins of others, tallying them up as entries in my journal, in my record book. In fact. The word think in our text is a very important word in the New Testament that is rich with gospel significance. Most often this word thinketh is used to explain God's legal act of justifying the elect believer and forgiving him or her of 
their sins. This word is especially used by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans. And so, for a moment, let's turn a few pages back in our Bible to the book right before 1 Corinthians, Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is the chapter in which this word that we find in our text, thinketh, is used over and over again. And here we see that this term is an accounting term. It means reckoning or impute. And it is the term that the Bible uses to describe our justification. Remember what justification is. It's one of the saving acts of God. It's the saving act of God in which he reckons us righteous in his sight on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is God's verdict as judge in which he declares to us that he forgives our sins, accounts us righteous before him, and constitutes us heirs of life everlasting. He forgives our sins. He does not impute them. But he credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. So now Romans 4, starting at verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That word counted is the same word that we have in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Thinketh. Counted. Abraham was justified by faith. God did not impute his sins to him, but credited to him the righteousness of Christ. If you read on, you'll find this word occur several times. And then you get to verse verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And that word impute is the same word as we have in our text. Thinketh. Forgiveness is not imputing sin, meaning God does not hold our sins against us. He does not view us in light of those sins. He does not hold us as obligated to suffer the punishment prescribed by his law for our sins. He does not impute them to us on the basis of Christ and his work. And so, the point that's being made here is that this facial feature of love Oh, how beautiful it is. It's connected with the very heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone. The Christian love we are called to have for one another is based upon God's work for us, His love for us, sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins on the basis of whose work He justifies us. God's love toward us is manifest in this, that He reckons us not as sinners, but reckons us as righteous. And now we are called to have a love that reflects the justifying love of our God. That's Christian love. Love does not reckon wrong. It does not count up, tally up, like a meticulous bookkeeper, the wrongs of my brother or my sister. Oh, do we not feel How this word of God runs contrary to the inclinations of our flesh. Why are the Ten Commandments written in the negative? Thou shalt not. The reason is not that God is most concerned that we not do certain things, but isn't concerned about what we do. We know very well that the Ten Commandments 
reveal God's positive will for us. But the reason the Ten Commandments are framed in the negative is that negative shows us, sets before us our natural inclination. And the same thing is true of this text. The text says, love thinketh no evil. Love does not keep a record of wrongs because that's what you and I are prone to. That's our default setting. That's what we do naturally. That's what we are most likely to do when spouse, child, friend, church member, coworker does something to me or says something to me that makes me upset. I'm going to mark that down and hold it against them. And they better pay me back somehow. So while many of us might admit we don't have a knack for accounting, we're all pretty good at keeping a record of wrongs. We probably don't have a physical copy of that ledger, but we don't need to because it's in our head. It's as real a book as any other book that you might pull off your shelf at home. And perhaps this book, entitled Record of My Neighbor's Wrongs, is quite large. Perhaps it has many pages. Maybe there's multiple volumes to it. Do we have such a book? What do we see when we open it? Whose names do you find in all capital letters at the top of a page as a heading with a bunch of entries underneath it? So-and-so said this. So-and-so did this. So-and-so was mean to me. So-and-so was so unkind that day. So-and-so hurt my feelings. So-and-so is such a pain at work. So-and-so gets in my way. On and on we can go. How meticulous are those records that we've kept? Perhaps it's not only concrete wrongs, but perceived wrongs as well. We perceive someone has said something, or acting on rumor, we've heard someone said something or did something, and we jot it down in our record book. A record book of the debts of our debtors. So easily we do this. So easily we live this way. So easily we carry around that ledger, that record book in our minds, and we read out of that record book, and the contents of that record book influence how we view the people around us, and how we interact with the people around us, and how we treat them. And the point of our text is, that is utterly contrary to the very nature of Of true love. Love doesn't do that. And when we do do that, love is not ruling in our hearts at that time. Charity thinketh no evil. We've looked carefully at each of those words except the negation. No evil. Charity thinketh no evil. Not some, not a little bit. Not when I want to, no evil. It's a strong statement, is it not? But it makes sense. It makes sense in light of what true love is, as we've explained and as we've thought about throughout the course of this 
series on 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Love is the earnest desire, the committed pursuit of the true good of another person. And I pursue that true good through often denying myself and giving of myself for them. When you or I keep a record of my spouse's, my child, my friend, my church member's wrongs, are we desiring their good? Are we pursuing their true good? When we open up that mental record book and mull over its contents and kindle afresh that flame of resentment, are we seeking their true good? We're not even seeking our own good at that moment. Taking another sip of the poison. But there you see how the meticulous record keeping of another's wrongs does not fit with gospel informed Christian love. When we are keeping that record and living according to that record and opening that record and treating other people according to what we've written in that record, we are not desiring their good. We are not seeking their well-being. In fact, we're pursuing the opposite. We're cherishing those grievances. We're keeping the fire of our anger alive because that's pleasing to the sinful nature. Holding debts against our neighbor makes us feel justified in our actions of mistreatment towards them. Keeping a record of wrongs is ultimately seeking one's own. And now we look at the other things we've studied in 1 Corinthians 13. We can go up from our text and see that when we keep a record of wrongs, we're violating everything that we've already looked at in the previous verses. When we keep that record of wrongs, we're seeking our own. When we keep that record of wrongs, we're going to be more easily provoked. Because we run into that person and we open up the book and we look at the list of all of the things that we've recorded under their name. I don't like him. He did that. He said that. She spoke that way about me back then. Love is different. Love is different. Love is not a bookkeeper of my brother, my sister's wrongs. I understand that doesn't mean that love just blinds itself to evil, ignores sin, and never deals with it, and just pretends it doesn't exist. That's not the idea of the text. Sin must be dealt with, and we'll talk about that a little more later. But the point of the text is, love doesn't look at my neighbor's offenses as something I'm going to grab hold of and hang on to so that I can now use it against them. But love earnestly seeks to resolve wrongs and offenses that have put a barrier between me and my brother and my sister so that our relationship can be mended if that sin or that offense has disrupted it. And so that we can have unhindered fellowship with one another as husband and wife, as parent and child, as friend, as brother and sister, as co-worker at the job site or in the office. Love doesn't want walls between us. And love is going to work hard to pull those walls down brick by brick. But you see, when we keep a record of wrongs, every single entry in our logbook is another brick on the wall. Love says, no, I don't want that record. I don't want that wall. 
I want a good relationship with my neighbor, my brother, my sister. And I'm going to work at it. I'm going to observe that golden rule the Lord Jesus Christ gave. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How many of us want our neighbor to keep a detailed log of our wrongs? There's a thought for us. Are we as diligent in keeping a record of our own wrongs as we are of keeping a record of our neighbor's wrongs? And and here comes in pride. Earlier in this chapter, we were told that love vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. But when we keep a record of wrongs, we're really puffing up ourselves. Because usually our record of our neighbor's wrongs is a lot longer and more detailed than our record of our own wrongs, if we even have one. And so when we keep a record of wrongs, whether we recognize it or not, we quickly become the Pharisee who puffs himself up and says, I thank thee God that I am not as other men are, like this publican over here. And because I'm not, I have every right to be angry with this publican. I have every right to despise this publican. I have every right to treat this publican differently. Because I'm better. Look at this list of wrongs he's done against me. Pride quickly comes in the door when we keep that record book of the neighbor's wrongs open. And so love, love which is humble says, no, close the book. I'm not going to keep adding entries to this book. Instead of adding entries to this book, I'm going to get to work addressing problems that exist between me and my friend or my brother, my sister or my spouse so that our relationship, wherever strained, can be mended. Because I seek good. I seek the true good of my neighbor. That's what's most important to me. So I'm not going to keep a detailed account of their debts tally up their wrongs so that I can nurse a grudge, but I'm going to make the conscientious, gospel-shaped, spirit-prompted choice not to mark my neighbor's transgressions. And in love, not to log them in my book, to close that mental ledger and refuse to meditate on what could be put in that ledger. I'm going to close the book. This is love in action. This is what Jesus means when he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. We're getting at one of the core parts of that, which is very hard for us to do, but important. This is loving our neighbor as ourself. Not holding a grudge. Not keeping a record of wrongs. So that's the meaning. That's the meaning of the text. But now having looked at the meaning, there is a calling implied, is there not? These statements here in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13 are indicative statements. They're stating fact. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. But that fact implies a calling because this is the nature of true love and because love is the fruit of the Spirit and because the Christian life is living out those few fruits of the Spirit, the calling of the text is do this not of your own strength but in dependence upon and drawing upon the power of God's grace that has put this love in your heart as one of God's children. So here in the second point, the calling, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the negative side, how to put into practice 
not keeping a record of wrongs. Then we'll look at the positive side. What this means positively. How we put this into practice positively. And then we'll finish off the second point by pointing out and warding off a few possible misunderstandings and misapplications of the principle of this text. How do we put into practice the negative? How do we close that record book which we so easily open and want to keep open? And so often we want to put pen to paper, record my neighbor's wrongs. Recognize this, that being a good bookkeeper of wrongs will isolate you and wreak havoc upon your relationships. Let's understand that. Because as God's people who have been regenerated and have had our affections renewed, we desire what our God desires. And our God, as we saw this morning, is a God of fellowship. We have been created For fellowship. And our inmost yearning is fellowship with our God and fellowship with one another. That's why relationships are so important to us as people and as Christians. That ties in with the covenant. The covenant is God's relationship of love and friendship with his people. That's at the heart of what it is to live. And while it may feel good to the sinful nature to be a meticulous record keeper of the wrongs done to me so that I can puff myself up over my neighbor and I can feel so aggrieved and I can think myself so much better than others and so forth, that wreaks havoc on relationships. And now this. The reality is we are most prone to keep a record of wrongs against the people we are closest to. And the reason for that is clear. They're the ones we regularly interact with. They're the ones we regularly talk with. They're the ones we want things from. They're the ones that most often get in our way. They are the ones who sin against us time and time again and against whom we sin against time and time again. And because we're close, there's ample opportunity to be scribbling away in our mental ledger. All those things that he or she did against me This week, last week, the years passed. In marriage, parenthood, in a close friendship, in the church, when we're close and we have a long-standing relationship that spans many years and there's much interaction, the devil comes and he says, great, I can do a lot with this. Because we're all sinners. And there are so many ways that we wrong one another And the devil would like us to write every single one of them down. So that our view of one another and our treatment of one another is controlled by that list of wrongs that we've accumulated. And you see what the devil does there? That's the devil's great work of division. That's how he puts bricks and builds walls between people, between spouses, between friends, between church members. That's the devil's work. And understanding that reality helps press upon us the importance of the teaching of this text. Don't be a meticulous accountant when it comes to the wrongs 
of others. goes against God's will and thus it dishonors him. And for the Christian, there's nothing worse than that. We want to please and honor and glorify our God and our Father, our Savior. That meticulous record keeping is going to divide me from the people I care about most. My spouse. If I keep a running list of all of her or his debits, All the things that he or she has said or done, which I judge to indebt them to me so that I need payback, eventually my marriage is going to turn icy. That wall will be built up. And hurts which otherwise could have been overlooked, covered by love's tenderness, will get deeper deeper and deeper. As we scribble in our ledger book of wrongs, we cut one another deeper and deeper and deeper. Parents, if you keep a record of your children's wrongs so that their sins against you are never really finished, so that later when they do something else, you bring it up again and you use it against them, not only will that provoke them to wrath and discourage them, but it will inadvertently teach them that The wrong is never finished. It's never really done. And that will push, push, push away. It's contrary to the gospel. That's not how God deals with us when he forgives our sins. He wipes them away and he doesn't deal with us according to our transgressions anymore. He doesn't keep that record book of wrongs. There's a brother or sister of the church you've had a disagreement with. Maybe you had a spat with them. Maybe a heated conversation. Things didn't go well. Is it written down in your ledger? And if it is, what effect is that ledger having on your relationship right now? Are you close? you get along? Do you seek each other out in the back of church? Or are the bricks piling up so that you avoid each other at all costs? See, you see the harm that record keeping of wrongs does to one of God's greatest gifts, the communion of the saints, relationships that He's given us. Seeing that and setting it alongside to compare it with the beauty of love, love which is kind, love which is long suffering, love which is tender, love which is all of these things. Does it not move us, beloved? Close the book. Close the book. Especially this danger when we start to accumulate entries in our record book of wrongs. We like to use that record book of wrongs as leverage. Leverage to win my next argument. Or to press my spouse into submission in our next conflict. We have this tendency to weaponize past wrongs which we store away in our ledger book. We keep them as a private arsenal. So when he or when she wrongs me, I can open my book and put them in their place. Put them to shame. Force them to do what I want by 
imposing upon them a fresh sense of guilt for all of the things they've done or said to me in the past. And that kind of thing wounds relationships deeply. Deeply. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't want to do that. Love says, perish the thought because I seek and desire the good of my spouse, my friend, my child, my neighbor. I don't want to weaponize their past wrongs and use them as leverage in future conflicts. Think of Joseph. Think of Joseph. His brothers held a lot of things against him. Most of them perceived wrongs. But Joseph, by the grace of God, did not do the same to them. Even though they committed such horrific wrongs against Joseph, they sold him into slavery. And yet, when Joseph and his brothers were finally reunited, though Joseph didn't just wink at their sin, pretend it didn't exist. No, he tested them to ascertain the genuineness of their repentance. But Joseph did not bludgeon them with his record of wrongs that he had kept waiting for this day. Joseph said in Genesis 50 verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. There's forgiveness in those words and there's a recognition of God's sovereignty, how God used this even for good. You think about how Peter, or rather how Jesus treated Peter after Peter denied his Lord intentionally, purposely, three times, right during Jesus' hour of greatest trial. Then after Jesus' resurrection, you go to the the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus has prepared a breakfast of fish and he sits with his disciples and he says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Three times for Peter's three denials, each time speaking his forgiving love, love that did not hold those denials over Peter's head for the rest of his life. That's love. That's love. And that's what gets us to the positive then. The positive. Love is forgiving. That's another way to read our text. If love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, then what does love do with wrongs? Love forgives wrongs. Love is forgiving. That means love has a Spirit that is willing and ready and desirous to forgive those who have trespassed against me. And when my debtors come to me and seek my forgiveness and confess their wrong, I cheerfully forgive them. And when they don't seek me out, I seek them out and seek to bring them to an acknowledgement of their wrong because I desire to remove that offense that is between us and I desire to extend to them forgiveness. That's Jesus' teaching in Luke 17 verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, And seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. When you walk in love and live by these words of Jesus, rather than being busy keeping keeping a tally, you're going to be busy working to erase whatever tally marks may exist in that book. 
You won't suffer those tally marks to accumulate. It will be intolerable to you to have unresolved wrongs sitting there dividing you from your spouse, your friend, your child, your brother, your co-worker. And so yes, you'll engage in that uncomfortable work of addressing sin, of addressing wrong, of patiently, kindly, lovingly, humbly working through the issues to reach a resolution. It's uncomfortable, it is. It's uncomfortable rebuking a brother for his sin and calling him to proper repentance. It's uncomfortable acknowledging your own sin and seeking forgiveness from another person. But that uncomfortableness is nothing to be compared with the harm of leaving it unresolved to fester and to poison your relationship like an an infection that has gone septic. Jesus teaches us, be forgiving. That's the opposite of keeping a record of wrongs. Be willing, be ready to forgive and seek opportunities to forgive. And when someone comes to you repentant and seeking forgiveness, grant it. Like the father welcoming home his prodigal son. Forgive. Forgiveness is love in action. Love in action. In fact, forgiveness is one of the chief ways and one of the most beautiful ways that love expresses itself in our relationships. There are many ways that we express love to one another. Kind words, doing kind things for one another. And those are not to be minimized. Those are beautiful expressions of love. But this is a chief among those expressions of love when we forgive each other. Because that's costly. That requires me to let go of whatever resentment, whatever anger, whatever is boiling inside of me. To let that go and to show mercy. And the sinful flesh doesn't want to do that. Is there anything more self-giving, self-denying than forgiveness? Is there anything that's more committed to the true good of another person than forgiveness? Forgiveness is one of love's sweetest acts. So it is with God. How often do we not in our Reformed theology speak about for God's forgiveness as the chief blessing of salvation? To put it another way, God's forgiveness is one of the chief expressions of his sovereign saving love to us, his people. Love which he shows us in the gift of Jesus Christ, whose death has merited for us the forgiveness of sins. There's the costliness of God's love for us. How much he gives, how much he denies himself to forgive us our debts. That is Love. So you want to show, you want to show that you really love someone? You want to show your spouse you really love them? Don't keep a record of wrongs. But forgive. Generously. Joyfully. How many times? We don't need to face that question because love isn't keeping count. Seven times, 70 times seven. Jesus' point is, 
infinitely. It's love. Forgive. Forgive. And the beautiful thing about that forgiveness is the healing that it can bring to damaged relationships. The growth that it can bring to those relationships. The way forgiveness can actually deepen our love itself. We sin against the ones we love. We sin against them so often and they sin against us. We hurt them. They hurt us. But when we confess our faults to one another and forgive one another as God through Christ has forgiven us, what happens in our relationships? Our marriages are strengthened. Our friendships are strengthened. Our love for one another deepens. Trust is built. When we forgive and are forgiven, when we show mercy and receive mercy, that builds a relationship. Binds us together the more tightly. Casts out fear. You've experienced that, haven't you? Perhaps you got in a fight with your spouse. Some nasty things were said. Then you sat down and you talked through it. And maybe with tears you confessed to one another and you forgave one another. And the relief, the joy, the peace that flooded your soul. And now your relationship is stronger. And there's the wonderful sovereignty of God over even evil. God uses evil for good as he did with Joseph, so with us. And that's how we should view our conflicts. That's how we should view the issues we may have with other people in our lives. Not as an opportunity to meticulously record wrongs, but as a sovereignly given opportunity to grow in love and in fact deepen my relationship with that person by working through this issue biblically. Let's be good stewards. Not just of our money but of our conflicts too. Divinely given opportunities to show love to one another when it's hard, when the the fruit is rich, when we do. And so in light of all of this, how silly, how self-serving, how self-destructive is all of our record keeping of wrongs, our grudges, our resentment. Let's follow, beloved, let's follow the example of the Ephesian practitioners of curious arts. Remember those Ephesian practitioners of curious arts in Acts 9 or Acts 19 verse 19? They're a bunch of magicians who were convicted by the gospel preaching of the Apostle Paul, and what did that conviction of the gospel lead them to do? They took all of their books of curious arts, they piled them up in a pile and burned them. And the cost of all of those valuable books was exceeding great. Let's take our record books of wrongs and pile them up and burn them. And let forgiving love take their place. Well, that leads quickly to a couple of misapplications which we want to avoid. Number one, the principle of this text that love keeps no record of wrongs, that love is forgiving, does not mean 
that when there is a sin that has been committed and harm has been done, that we just wash over and pretend it didn't happen. That's not what keeping no record of wrongs means. Keeping no record of wrongs means I don't hold it against them and with a vengeful spirit want to get back at them, want to use it as a weapon against them, want to make them pay me back. That's very different than wanting to see an offense or a sin properly dealt with according to Scripture. As we saw in Luke 17, Jesus tells us when when someone has sinned, there ought to be a proper rebuke and that person ought to be brought to repentance. Keeping no record of wrongs does not mean repentance goes out the window. The text is rather teaching us this is how you approach your neighbor when they've wronged you. You approach them in love, not with a vengeful spirit, not with an interest to tally up their wrongs, to use them against you, but love is going to guide you to deal with that sin rightly with a goal of resolving it so that you may be reconciled. Secondly, that love does not keep a record of wrongs does not mean does not mean that love must exempt the wrongdoer of all consequences of his wrongdoing. That would be another misunderstanding of the text and a misunderstanding of forgiveness. Forgiveness, not keeping a record of wrongs, does not mean one who has done wrong and inflicted harm is automatically exempt from every consequence just because they've said sorry and they've been forgiven. Sometimes people who are not really repentant of their sin but want to escape the consequences of their sin will misuse the doctrine of forgiveness, will misuse this text and say, well, you've forgiven me so it's the end of the story and nothing should happen. Now, while it's true, when we forgive someone, the matter is finished between us. We don't hold it against them. That's different than saying, okay, there's no more consequences. You can forgive someone, but there might be consequences still for their actions. Consequences that must be suffered. Think of Zacchaeus. The sins he committed as an extortioner, stealing from so many people. He was convicted by the gospel. He was truly sorry. He repented. He received forgiveness from Jesus. And yet, that wasn't the end of the story. He didn't say, okay, good, I'm all set. But he restored to those that he had wronged. He gladly suffered the consequences. And that's part of how he demonstrated his repentance. And so there's an application that, that needs to be made here to a particular issue that is in focus today. And that's in dealing with cases of sexual abuse. It's not unforgiving and it's not keeping a record of wrongs to impose restrictions upon an individual who has perpetrated such sins but has repented of those sins. Such restrictions are the consequences of sin and must be put in place for the protection of others. That's in fact showing love both to that person and to others. And willingly submitting to such restrictions is how a former sinner or perpetrator of that that sort can demonstrate the genuineness of repentance and change. So we must be careful that we not misapply this text and think that keeping no record of wrongs means as soon as forgiveness is extended, there's nothing more that is to happen and all consequences simply disappear. That's not the case. Forgiveness means 
I don't hold that sin against you as my debtor and I want you to pay. Forgiveness is, I release you from that debt. But even after forgiveness has been extended, in the case of many sins where there has been serious hurt, consequences ought still to be suffered and gladly borne by the one who has done wrong. In that way, they show their repentance and show their love to those they may have hurt. Well, finally, we get to the motivation. What's going to motivate us as God's people to burn our record books and stop keeping a record of wrongs? And the answer is simply the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. This text presses upon us the reality of our sinfulness because you and I, the reality is we keep a record of wrongs, do we not? But God doesn't keep his record of wrongs against us. And that's our joy, that's our happiness, that's our salvation. For if God were to keep a record of wrongs against us, we would be undone. As Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 says, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one, no one. And verse 4, But there is forgiveness with thee. Amazing, is it not? Because God is the all-knowing God. He knows every single one of our sins. And his justice must mark every one of our sins. Because his justice demands that every one of our sins be punished. And on judgment day, the books are going to be opened. And men will be judged according to what is in those books. But herein is the love of God. He did not reckon to us our sins. He did not count our wrongs against us. He did not impute our transgressions to us. But he reckoned our sins. He counted our wrongs. He imputed our transgressions to Jesus in our place. And Christ willingly laid down his life as our substitute to pay our infinite debt. So that on the basis of Jesus' work, God could justly forgive his debtors. That's the bookkeeping of grace. That's the accounting of justification. So now, visualize it in your mind. Picture God's book, His ledger, and there is one page, and your name is on the top of that page. And what's underneath your name? A lifelong list of your infinite debts. All of your sins against the most high majesty of God. Your failure to love him. Your failure to love your neighbor. It's all there. And then there's another book. And on the first page there's the name Jesus Christ. And there's an even longer list of entries under this name. But not a single one of those entries is a sin. Every entry details the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here's the grace of God. He takes those two lists and switches them. So that your list of your debts is reckoned, counted, imputed to Jesus Christ. And his righteousness and obedience is reckoned, counted, and imputed to you. He's numbered with the transgressors. 
you are accounted among the righteous. Your sin is imputed to him and his obedience to you. God holds him responsible to pay your debts. And that he has done. And God rewards you with the reward that you did not earn, but that he earned. That's the double imputation. That's at the heart of the gospel. The wonder of salvation. As expressed in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God hath made him Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. God marked our transgressions to Jesus. Therefore, we can stand. God looks at his books. He looks at your name, believer. Underneath your name in his book, he sees the works of Christ. Just as if. You had never sinned, had in your own person fulfilled all righteousness. What effect does that have on you? What effect does that have on me? What effect does that have on the way we love and treat our neighbors? A huge effect it ought to have. And the effect is this. I'm going to stop keeping a record of my spouse's wrongs, my children's wrongs, my brother's offenses. How can I keep such a record when God does not? How can I hold sin against another when God does not? How can I withhold forgiveness from my brother whom God himself has forgiven? How can I demand payment for wrongs done against me which Christ has already paid for? And Now I begin to view My brother, in this light, in light of who he is in Christ and what Christ has done for him and done for me, and I say, how can I keep a book anymore? I'm going to take it out and burn it. Because with God, there is forgiveness and plenteous redemption. And the only record book I'm going to keep now is the record of the wonderful works of God for me, a sinner. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the penetrating word of this text. Press it upon our hearts. Strengthen us to live by it for the glory of Thy name. Above all, we thank Thee for Thy forgiveness, Thy grace to us. Thou dost not mark our transgressions, dost freely and fully forgive them all. We thank Thee, in Jesus' name, Amen.